Evening, Dan. I'm not sure I can get used to this waiting music, Omar. <laughs> I can turn it off next time if that's preferred. How are you? I'm very good, thanks. How have you been? Doing all right, thank you. Yeah, it was um, yeah, we were just talking in preparation on the for our chat now, just about the sort of weekend's action and without spoiling too much. Obviously, I was we would well, it sort of just illuminated my uh, sort of weekend between the um. The, the uh, would it be fair to say rather turgid Liverpool Chelsea game versus the rather exciting uh, United Arsenal game? Would that be going a bit too far? Yeah, no, I think that's that's fair. I mean, such a contrast to what those two fixtures would have been, say, two years ago or three years ago. Um, yeah, kind of two teams clearly really not on form versus two teams that really are. Um, I still fancy Liverpool to turn their season around. I think they've got too much too much quality not to but uh yeah it was not not a great watch was it uh like your optimism but i don't even say even in even closer time i mean the two the two cup finals between chelsea and liverpool last season were mm. probably some two of the best nil nil draws i've probably ever seen um uh in truth in terms of the quality maybe not the quality of the finishing but um yeah, in terms of anything else you know it, it's funny how form and performance can oscillate so quickly yeah, yeah, it's, it's bizarre, wasn't it? Yeah, those games were brilliant. Um, you're absolutely right. Um, yeah, it's been. I mean, like maybe maybe it's a good route into the first conversation to have, which is, um, I think you saw a post which I did. Kind of, I did a version of it on Twitter and a version of it on LinkedIn around this Premier League season, which I think has just been brilliant. Um, I think it's it's kind of, you get lost a little bit because of the World Cup was just such a break in the season. But I think since we have come back from the World Cup. Um, there's clearly been a uh, like a concertina effect at the bottom of the league where you've got a number of teams that are um, pretty close to each other. We've got a really good title race. Arsenal have really kicked on actually since since the World Cup. I think there were questions whether they would maintain that form, but they they really have. Um, and then Champions League again. The, the you know the teams that you thought might come back into it, Liverpool and Chelsea, haven't as strongly as, as you might think, and teams like Spurs, who were in the places, have dropped out a little bit. So, I think it's been a phenomenal season, and we can get into some of the numbers of it. But um, it's one of those where if it if it if this level of kind of interest and in jeopardy remains throughout the rest of the season, then I think it will be remembered as an all time great. No, I think I I think that's exactly right. It just it feels I get the sense that we're it's a just much more unpredictable season. Even you know and maybe they're outliers in themselves, like how well Fulham, for example, for a lot of yesterday played against Spurs, uh, and how well they've played generally this season, and how well they're generally doing in the league. And um, and when I saw your LinkedIn post, and then I just you know read it a few times. Um, yeah, I think it would be fascinating because you you call it, you guys at Twenty First Group call it. Um, I think you've got it your league projection model, and it's sort of on the basis of assessing probabilities of each team achieving their goals. And yeah, it would be great maybe just to run through some of those numbers. Obviously, they've been slightly updated from the 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 weekend, but if, effectively, is it is it that you know, almost everybody has something very important to play for, which I guess you'd, you'd expect sometimes goes without saying in um, any league. But like I guess we've talked about previously, that doesn't actually mean that the jeopardy or the, the, the fine line of success and failure or otherwise then actually occurs towards the end of the season. Um, but it looks like this, the, you know, this season is tight in, in so many different ways. Yeah. So, I mean, to give a bit of context, we... 
at the moment, as it stands in our model, there are four teams which have uh, greater than 90% certainty over like the main outcome of their season. And so I'll give a bit of uh, context to that. So Brentford at the moment, um, obviously won't win the league, very unlikely to get relegated. We've got a less than 1% chance and they've got a 1% chance of, of making the Champions League. So 99% sure that they won't finish in the Champions League or better and they won't be relegated. Um, Aston Villa, very similar position, you know, won't, almost certainly won't be relegated and almost certainly won't make the Champions League. And Fulham are, Fulham are the third team in that boat. And we've actually got Crystal Palace as the fourth team in that boat where we've got them 5% to be relegated. So they're 95% sure, Palace, that they won't um, have a kind of big, you know, you call it a cliff edge, right? The cliff edge to the Champions League and cliff edge down to the to the Championship in terms of relegation. There are four teams that have that kind of high degree of certainty that they won't have a cliff edge this season. Everyone else has at least a 10% chance of either being relegated, uh, making the top four, uh, or in the case of Arsenal, Man City obviously winning the league, not winning the league, which is 52% to Arsenal, 47% to Man City in our model, obviously that 1% distributed amongst mostly Man United. Um, so that that kind of gives you a sense of the, the uncertainty that exists um, this season, which which is huge. Like most teams don't really have a good sense of where um, they'll finish. And, you know, if I look at look at some other competitions, so I look at Germany, there's what we got, I'm just to get my laptop here, about five teams where that's the case. That's five out of 18 teams, obviously, that um, have a high degree of certainty about their season. In France, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight, eight or so teams that have high degree of certainty about their season. Um, I'll look at Spain as well here on my computer. And again, you've got about and just eyeballing it, seven or eight teams that have a high degree of certainty. And I appreciate, you know, as you say, like, it seems odd to say that teams at this point in the season don't have anything to play for. But there are certain teams that, okay, they're far from being on the beach, but they, um, you know, that you can be pretty certain about where they'll finish. Like Aston Villa this season, under Emery, you'd be pretty sure they're not going to get relegated and they're not going to finish in the top four. And that doesn't mean that the fans have nothing to be interested in, um, but, but there's no real kind of cliff-edge jeopardy about their season. Uh, and the Premier League this season is just full of it, um, you know, and the, and the teams that even at the bottom, you know, Bournemouth have got as favourites. There's still only 70% favourites to be relegated. You know, it's, you know, close to, call it a, a two in three chance, you know, a one in three chance is still a pretty significant chance of not being relegated. So, yeah, I, I just think it's been a, a really good season. And um, the consequence of this season being as it is means that every game has a lot riding on it. And, um, you know, Everton over the weekend... Um, I forget what they were, which I might have the numbers here. Everton, before the weekend, we had them at 48%. Um, sorry, 52% for survival. We now got them below 50% for survival. Um, you know, teams like, I remember the Forest uh, Southampton game a few weeks ago when they played each other, which, you know, in most other seasons, you just wouldn't wouldn't even think about a Forest Southampton game as, as a neutral, but it basically flipped their relegation probabilities. Well, I think uh, Forest going into the game were about 65% to go down, Southampton 35%, and there was about a 30% swing either way um, for both teams off the back of that game. Um, and yeah, I, for, for me, again, coming at it from my perspective of, uh, of someone who spends the days um, in the numbers, I, I think these numbers really bring to life just how entertaining the season is and, and how much it is interesting as a neutral to follow all these games this year and all the consequences like any given weekend you can pick out 
a game and go, yeah, that's that's a massive game for whoever's playing in it. Can I ask one maybe, um, well, a couple of follow-ups? And the, f- the first one I was thinking about, obviously, because um, as most listeners know, uh, Liverpool is our team. And um, obviously, you know, topsy-turvy season, to put it mildly right now. Um, and based on the model that was before this weekend, because they were the stats that you said, that you provided, that Liverpool, before the Liverpool-Chelsea game, had a 44% chance of reaching the top four. Um where, where where do the numbers look for Liverpool? Um, and uh, is that confidence found in the numbers, um, in the underlying performance matrix, or just your general optimism that Liverpool can turn it around <laughs> with a few better, with a better sort of injury list, which uh, reduces and a few of the attacking players, um, you know, come back in? Yes, there's a few of those things. So the way our model works is basically looks at how well the team has performed um, over particularly um, this season, it does take into account performances from other seasons because actually, you know, 20 games is not a huge sample size, 19 games is not a huge sample size to evaluate how good a team actually is. You know, there's, there's quite a lot of luck involved in, in football. Um, so that's that's accounted for. And obviously Liverpool haven't performed great this season, although, you know, their goal difference isn't terrible. Um, I think, uh, I haven't got the league table to hand, but I think it's actually better than quite a few teams. Maybe it's like fourth or fifth in the league. Um, so the, the goal difference tends to be a decent indicator. And okay, that was inflated by a big win over over Bournemouth, but it tends to be a, re- a reasonably reliable predictor of how well a team is going to do in the future, even more so than the points that they've won. And so, if you were to very crudely rank teams by goal difference at this point in the season, that would be more correlated with how well they're going to do over the rest of the season than the actual points they've won. So Liverpool's is, is in a healthy spot, uh, and also we account for kind of the quality of the squad. And as you say, they've got. Squad value got a lot of players that will be coming back into fitness second half of the season potentially, so that would that would play a role hopefully uh, in their turnaround. But essentially, we've got Liverpool and Newcastle same odds to finish top four about forty percent, um, which yeah might be a bit bullish on Liverpool. But as I said, I think they've got I think they've got a great squad. It's not much different from previous years, and yes, players get older and so on. But this sense of them falling off a cliff doesn't happen. We we saw Liverpool in. Was it 2021 season where they had a similar different form and then obviously finished the season really strongly to finish in the top four? So I wouldn't necessarily rule it out just yet. And I think if we turn to, um, unless there's anything particular else on the um, on the numbers that you'd um, like to consider, but I think the other thing that I um, really enjoyed um, that you wrote, again, I think on LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago was... Um, looking and thinking about um, either trends or things you'd like to see for 2023 in in sports, I guess, more widely. But a lot of those examples can sort of fit not quite nicely into um, the football framework more generally. If you could maybe just take us through, um, you came up with four sort of ideas on performance, competitions, investment and, and the fans and just uh, talk through some of those ideas and then maybe we can sort of eke out some of the points from there because there were some really interesting bits uh, to chat more about, I think. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I mean, the kind of, uh, I suppose, the self-interest um, here is that uh, the, those kind of four areas, performance, competitions, investment and fans are four of the areas that we work in in, in 21st Group. And then starting with, with performance, um, I, I've just been... Uh, I've been talking uh, about this to whoever was interested in listening. I've just been so amazed by England cricket in the last 
uh, we'll call it six months and, and the way that that team has been turned around in, in test cricket in that time and and actually the the way they've gone about it I don't think there are many examples of a team becoming that attacking and changing their playing style by that amount overnight I just can't think of it in, in other sports um, is is mind-boggling and it's, it's real there'll be all kinds of studies into the mindset um, shift that Ben Stokes and Brendan McCullum have, have performed there um, but I think the interesting thing for me is that um, actually, there's a lot of evidence in a lot of different sports around the value of, of attacking sports. Um, so the most famous example maybe is going for it on fourth down in, in American football. There's really good evidence to show that teams that in, will do better in the long run if they attack, i.e. go for it on, on fourth down. Similarly, we've done research on on teams, football teams when they're when they are losing, sorry, when they're winning games, they tend to sit back too much and they tend to concede goals at a higher rate than they otherwise would when they're uh, losing games or drawing games. Um, and actually continuing to attack with, when you're winning in a football match is kind of uh, gives you a better chance of winning. And actually, I think we've seen that. I think Man City are a really good manifestation of that. They just continue to attack whenever, they, whenever they're winning games. Uh, golf, there's evidence for it as well, um, you know, in terms of passing more aggressively. Um, tends to yield better outcomes uh, for, for golfers. So I think there's there's a whole. Lot, sometimes people I think think numbers and analytics tells you to take the boring option. Actually, a lot of the time it tells you to take the exciting option. Uh, and I know the the, the England cricket team are, are very kind of analytically driven, uh, and, and I, I know that this kind of is it's certainly driven there. Their white ball performance, and I think it's driven in part their red ball performance. Um, and so I, I'm just kind of interested in seeing, particularly in football, um, teams play more attacking, even more attacking football. I think we've got a sense of what attacking football looks like. But I was at the the City Chelsea game a few weeks ago, and, and one of the things that struck me is that Erling Haaland came back to defend a free kick for for Man well, a Chelsea free kick for Man City. Um, you know, deep inside his own half and. I think a genuinely really attacking option, not even really attacking, but semi-attacking option would be leave Erling Haaland on the halfway line because you probably pull out two or three of Chelsea's best defenders and, and actually that gives you a better, a, a decreased chance of conceding the goal. So I still don't think we've fully seen this kind of basketball style football yet, in football yet because I think there are things, you know, whether it's leaving players up for corners, whether it's really committing full-backs, um, and the last thing I say on this is that the one coach that I think um, has done this really consistently in football is—I forget his first name—but it's um, his surname Zeman, um, uh, who who was a, a manager predominantly in Italy. Who, who, whenever you looked at the numbers, his games were always averaging around kind of four or five goals a game. A really attacking coach who really kind of committed numbers forward, and I would love to see a coach like that in in the Premier League. Can I ask one point on that, Omar? Because I, I guess one of the one of my first thoughts when you were talking was yes, but football is generally low scoring game. Um, query the the risk obviously in cricket being you know one poor stroke, one poor shot, and you're out. So the risk and jeopardy is obviously quite high. But at least you have you know ten, nine others to to back you up if necessary. When at least you're batting. Does the fact that football is such a low scoring game therefore generally more low scoring game which means um you can have a bad day or an off day and have lots of chances and not take those chances does that 
I don't know. I can't quite work in my head whether that is of then more reason to be more attacking or less reason to be attacking. Yeah, it's a really good question. So it actually, I'd say the answer depends. So if I'm uh, Bournemouth at the moment, bottom of the Premier League or near the bottom of the Premier League um, and struggling, actually it's in my interest to keep games lower scoring because I'm probably not going to blitz out the best teams in the league or better teams than me in the league. It's probably better to kind of keep the game low scoring and then maybe I get a set piece up the other end. Whereas I think if you're Liverpool or Man City or Arsenal, it, it does make sense to attack um, because if games are open or high scoring, you'll probably beat teams that are of lower quality than you. So it does depend a little bit who you are in the league. And I think one thing, I, one big shift I think we've seen in the last 15 years or so is that the best teams in world football are now more attacking. You know, if you think back to... You talk about bad Liverpool-Chelsea games. The one on Saturday was absolutely nothing compared to the bad Chelsea-Liverpool games under Mourinho and Benitez. Um, so I think the game has um, moved on in that respect. There are more more attacking, high-quality teams now in, in world football. And I think that's a good thing. But I guess my point is I think it could go even further. Yeah, I love that example. I mean, I think I, all that I would say in contrast to there is that, granted, yes, we, we uh, align attacking high scoring football with more um attractive games to watch but you have to say some of those benitez Mourinho, either one nils or champions league semi-finals or cup matches were some of the most extraordinary dramatic games i've seen in a long time maybe because it was more riding on it rather than the actual game which then made it very you know tetchy but um yeah i guess there's different ways to be able to be attracted to watch football one of them being loads of goals and another thing being the significance of one goal yeah that's a fair point actually because yeah those games were incredibly tense and i think there is merit in um you know, some games are genuinely interesting to watch tactically. I think sometimes people say, oh, this is a really interesting tactical game when actually it's just a rubbish game. But um, I think sometimes those games are, you know, genuinely interesting from that perspective. But what I would say is that the Champions League quarters and semis in the last few years have been high scoring and phenomenal. You know, if you think of like Real Madrid, Man City and Real Madrid-Chelsea games last year, um, you think of some of the games Liverpool have been involved, even though the Villarreal game uh, last year um, and many others Liverpool have been involved in that have been high scoring so I think you can have I think it's possible to have your cake and eat it now in, in elite European football No I completely agree with all of that um, the second one which if I'm being biased I actually think is um, uh, I'm not sure if bias is the right word but I think is I think is without doubt um, your best idea I'm not sure if it was completely from you or you've plagiarised from anyone else not that I would accuse you for one second um, Omar plagiarising anything but um, I really loved um, this next idea on competitions I know you've talked about you've actually talked about it for a number of years now on sort of mixed formats um, but I thought this was fascinating because the truth was up until I read your pieces on this I'd never really considered um, I never considered it before yeah, I think yeah, a lot of people think of mixed formats um, in the context of on the same court, so like mixed doubles or um, yeah, I'm trying to think of other mixed format events that don't really exist. But I think the um, I was kind of I think some of the mixed format events in the Olympics that we saw in athletics and swimming um, were, were some of the most fun events to watch, particularly in swimming. I thought the the mixed medley um, mixed format um, 
uh, at the Olympics were, were great because you just didn't know how the races were going to unwind. That point of jeopardy that we spoke about earlier, I think, is is really key. And I think just more broadly, um, yeah, an opportunity for women's sport is if you raise the the stakes from a sporting perspective, you by necessity raise the investment that's in that sport. And the parallel always gives the Olympics, you know, a gold medal at the Olympics, whether it's for a man or a woman, is is worth the same. And therefore, all Olympic or most Olympic associations invest the same. And some maybe even invest more in the women's because there's more opportunities to. Um, you know, there's great opportunity there to get a competitive edge. And actually, speaking with uh, with a with a national governing body recently, who said actually that maybe their focus in the short term will be on the women's women's football rather than men's football, just because there's better opportunity to to make gains there. So I think when the sporting side is is kind of equal, um, then the investment tends to be equal. Um, and I, I think this may be the wrong phrase to use, but I think you can almost embarrass teams for their lack of investment in, in women's sport by creating mixed events. So the example I would use um, is um, Super Cups, um, which I think are a bit of a kind of dated, not very uh, interesting concept anymore, where you have, for example, UEFA have their Europa League and, and Champions League um, uh, you know, winners play each other. Well, why not turn that into a four-team tournament where you've got the men and the women playing two-legged matches? So this year, and I'm trying to remember my... Champions League and Europa League winners off the top of my head, but um, you know I can't even remember now who won the Europa League last year, which is which is bad of me. Um, who was it? Was it Frankfurt? Yeah, it was Frankfurt, wasn't it? Um, so it was Frankfurt versus um, Frankfurt versus Real Madrid in one. Uh, and imagine in the women's, you had again. This, this is uh, uh, my error for not. I think it was was it Leon or Barcelona who won the women's? But let's say Leon. Um, and let's say there was a women's second competition and, I don't know, um, Man City won that competition. Imagine having a four-team event where you had Lyon, Man City, Frankfurt and uh, and Barcelona, uh, sorry, and Real Madrid playing each other. You'd have, I don't know, Real Madrid versus Lyon men, then Real Madrid versus Lyon women. And the aggregate score of that, the winner of that goes on to a final to play the winner of the other game. I, d- I don't think these things are too far-fetched. I, d- I do think they create an incredible platform for um, for the women's game uh, and for you know clubs to realise, actually, if you invest in it, you can get big big sporting prizes. So, yeah, I've, um, yeah I, I'm not sure I'll articulate that ent- entirely clearly, but, but I do think these kind of same platform events, which the 100 has done really well in cricket as well, is, is worth, um, worth considering. The only thing I was thinking about there, Omar, just to play devil's advocate, is does that mean some of the teams aren't there really on sporting merits, but only because their their men's or women's team have actually then qualified and done pretty well? Could that lead to sort of quite potentially um, uh, uh, unequal sporting semi-finals potentially? Yeah, potentially in the short term, yeah, uh, for sure. Um, But I think that would the the point would be well, you got to sort out your men or women's team in order to achieve that and actually you know in, partic- in particular you'd imagine the bigger imbalances would be in the women's matches just because there's more inequality in the women's game so therefore you you use that as a bit of a platform to, to drive investment but yeah I, i'd agree I, I totally get that point um that that may be the case no good stuff and then the third point you were talking about um investment and um 
uh, you used the phrase coherent multi-club strategies, which I which I really liked. And you know, I think it's because everybody sees oh, everyone's thinking about multi-club ownership and the synergies and efficiencies and player trading opportunities and brand and commercial stuff. But your your view to a degree is actually it's very difficult to do it well. Is that probably a fair summation? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I I think there's very few multi-club ownership groups that do it well. And maybe we can get um, Jordan Gardner back on on the pod to, to talk about this. I know he's got a few perspectives on this, but um, yeah, you know, if you look at the numbers and the amount of players that are actually traded between multi-club ownership groups, virtually none are doing more than one player per club per year between clubs, um, which is a reflection of the fact that a, it's hard to kind of move players between clubs because a, they're human beings um, and B, you know, it's that, you know, it's not always easy to find spaces in the squads and, and each club having that need at that particular point in time. So I think that um, that often gets over-egged, the player movement piece. And I think what gets under-egged is, is the kind of IP sharing bits, um, where if you have kind of centralised resources, actually it can be be much more efficient. So, yeah, I, quite often you hear about ownership. Oh, we want to do a multi-club ownership. But there's never really asking why or the why is often, oh, we need to get around GBE regulations or whatever without any real digging into why. So, yeah, it's just something I'd like to see a bit more of, to be honest, because I think it's um, there is value in multi-club ownership groups, but I don't think they're done particularly well at the moment, save for a few exceptions. Can I ask also just on another sort of fact, because we talked about this at quite length, but it just sort of sprung to mind as you were talking about sort of justification for multi-club owner structures, but one of them effectively being, well, we'll buy another club because let's say it's a five to 10 million pound club. And then every uh, one or two years with whatever operating costs, we might run at a bit of a loss. If we can then sell a player um, just as a one-off for a five to 10 million figure, then we've more or less... Um, recouped our sort of capital outlay which means everything else is a bonus and then we grow the asset and have a slightly different rationale for why multi-club ownership works do you think that's just a bit of an outlier or just hopeful thinking because those transfers won't really come along without some real thought and planning and process behind it yeah I don't think you necessarily need multi-club ownership to do that I think would be my point Um, I think you know you can create a good player trading operation at any club it doesn't you don't need multi-club ownership necessarily to do that so yeah i think um yeah i yeah i i think it is a strategy but um yeah you could do in some respects you know you've got clubs like i don't know brighton or brentford who who have done that at, at premier league level yeah no it makes sense and the last one was just with a couple of minutes left was um uh, focus on fans and uh, yeah, this sort of attention economy that I- I've actually just written something on um, that maybe we'll have a chat about another time. But yeah, it's interesting just on that on that fourth um, fourth, fourth tier. Yeah, it looks like we're going to run out of time to chat amortisation, Dan, which is a which is a real shame, and we can pick that up in another week. <laughs> oh well, yeah, the, the day that we're that, the day that that's a problem, I think. We'll, we'll, we'll that back <laughs> yeah, no, on on fans, I think. Um, yeah, I. I like, like anyone there's so much sport on on weekends that i struggle to know what to watch or you, you're constantly using twitter which now as we we're discussing before the show is an absolute shambles where it's not even showing you your latest tweets even if you move it to following or anyway that's for another time but um you know it's difficult to know what to watch and i, and I think um i you know live scores apps kind of 
tell you when a goal is scored and Sky Sports might tell you when a game has started. But actually what you want to know as a fan is like when stuff is getting interesting and when I should be, you know, turning over to BT Sport or putting on the radio to this event or putting on Eurosport for the tennis or whatever, because it's getting interesting. And, and I don't feel the way I kind of engage with that now is, oh, I see on Twitter, I don't know. Well, last night was a great example, actually. You know, Aberdeen getting knocked out by a sixth-tier team. I only found out about that after the game. It would have been great if there was some, if there's technology. And there's technology exists, and we work on this stuff where, you know, you get an alert. Oh, the sixth-tier team has taken a lead over Aberdeen. It could be the biggest upset ever in um, in Scottish Cup history. Actually, I might tune into that. I've never normally watched the Scottish Cup, but this is, like, pretty historic stuff taking place. So I wouldn't mind you know, just having it on on the second screen or whatever, just to see if this piece of history unfolds. Whereas if Aberdeen took the lead, I wouldn't really care. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't want the notification at all in the first place. I wouldn't even care if the game was on. So I, I just think, yeah, fans should be, and, and, and broadcasters and rights holders should be looking to serve their fans in slightly different ways, where it's not just, oh, here was this incredible catch that happened, or this was the incredible goal. But this is this thing is happening now. It's unfolding. You should turn on your TV. You should turn on your radio. You should follow in the app as to how this is going to unfold because you want to. You don't want to miss history. And and sports fans always have that that FOMO. So that's kind of what I have in mind. I don't know if I've articulated that vision very well, but um, I do think there is a, a smarter way of getting fans engaged in the action. No, I think that's a really interesting one. It's almost like the way I uh, imagined it, as you were saying, it was. Um, for example, when the Olympics are on and when you were able, I think because it wasn't necessarily the case this time on BBC, um, where you could just literally channel hop to be able to watch 18 different events going on, that there was always something on one of the pages on one of the pages or one of the presenters saying, oh, we're going to this event now because actually things are really unraveling and we're in this position. That that was almost the the, the way that things were filtered in the past, wasn't it? Where the edit the editorial content um, effectively directed you to the the thing that was the most dramatic right at that moment. But you're, I think, quite ably trying to set out actually how do we use data to potentially do that as and when based on your pref- sport preferences generally. That's absolutely right. Yeah, like I, I could say to whoever the rights holder, whatever it is. I'm really interested in in upsets and massive thrashings. Don't tell me about, you know, tell me if one of those two things are happening, but don't tell me about anything else. Um, and you're absolutely right. Yeah, there's a lot of kind of editorial push at the moment, but not much personalised, you know, um, based on based on the fans' needs. So I think that's where it, where it'll get to over the coming years. Uh, it's something I'd like to see develop this year. Brilliant stuff, Powers. Yeah, awesome. I'll put some um, show notes into your um, uh, two pieces on the uh, yeah the four things to look out for or things to consider this year, and then some of the um, the current order by league table on your projection model. So great stuff as always. And um, yep, well we're we're entering the final week of the transfer window. So next is next Tuesday, thirty first. Yeah. Uh, Actually, yeah, yeah. We can uh, let's let's see how we're all doing on the transfer deadline day, but I think that might be a transfer deadline day special. <laughs> nice one. All right, we can chat amortization then. Can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, Dan. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for listening. You can follow me on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram at Football Law. Read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website, danielg.com forward slash blogs. Please do subscribe to the Dundee Football Podcast, like 
share and tag me. If you like the content, if not my voice, you'll probably also like my book Done Deal, an insider's guide to football contracts, multi-million pound transfers and Premier League big business. A bit of a mouthful. It's available to buy in hard copy, digitally and via Audible. All links are in the podcast show notes. Lastly, the podcast is powered by 13, which is a fashion brand I've started. All proceeds go towards cancer charity research, and particularly the stellar work done by John Krell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years. You can take a look at the merch and hopefully buy a t-shirt, hoodie, cap, or all three. Please do spread the word and go to 13shop.co.uk. That's 13shop.co.uk. Thanks for listening.